to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're going to read verses 13 to 27. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew in front of you, somewhere around you. And uh, Matthew 7 is around page 812 or so, uh, beginning verse 13 of that Bible. The one of whom we sang just now, the one who is worthy, the one who would go to the cross and lay down his life, the one who would be raised again, the one who would ascend to heaven, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the one who intercedes for you and for me, and the one who will return one day, the one who will judge the living and the dead, the one who in the end will be the only one standing with those who call on this one. He is the one who speaks. And the Spirit says to us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray together. Our great God and mighty Father, we pray now in these Moments as we consider these most sobering words from our precious Savior, 
that you by your spirit will teach us, that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear and see and receive and love and be changed by your word. We pray through these words that you will call the wandering person back home. We pray by these words that the prodigal who is in the pigsty even now longing and longing will see that what they need is to take the narrow way. We pray, Lord, that you will speak so that your church is built. We pray that those who are on the wide way to destruction will see the error of it this morning. And we pray you would save them. Glorify yourself now through the preaching of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. How many ways are there to live your life? In one sense, there are a lot of ways to live your life, right? You can live as a single person or as a married person. You could choose a career and stay in it your whole working life, or you could change halfway through or change a few times along the way. You could live in the downtown hustle and bustle in a loft somewhere, or you could live out in the country, or you could live in the suburbs. In one sense, there are a lot of ways that you can live your life. But when it comes to the most important thing in life, your heart, your soul, your spiritual life, how many ways are there to live? Now, it's common for people to say, well, it's basically the same answer, that like those other things, there are many ways to live. You could live as an atheist or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu, or you could be a Christian, that's fine, or you could take no label at all, or you could take bits and pieces from various things and tweak them and mix them and match them and call them what you want and make your own way. The idea is is that it's up to each of us to to figure out how we're going to live, to find what fulfills me, what, what makes me happy, what feels right, what gives me a sense of satisfaction. In other words, each of us have to find our own unique personal way. And so we might be told there are lots and lots of different ways that one might live. Now certainly you, friend, are responsible for the way that you live life. And I am responsible for how the way I live life. But are there really many ways to live What is it that God says? Is God okay with the many paths approach? Well, Jesus says, no, there actually aren't many ways. There are only two. Today we come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has said a great deal about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to follow Him, and now at the end, He calls for a decision. You cannot simply listen to the Sermon on the Mount and walk away and think, well, that was nice, wasn't it? There was a lot of good moral teaching there, lots of high, lofty ideals that we ought to aspire to as human beings. Jesus won't let it happen. He won't let you walk out. He won't let me walk out. 
He basically says there are only two possible responses to all that I've been saying. There are only two possible responses to Jesus' teaching, to Jesus himself. There are only two ways to live. And Jesus emphasizes this by laying out the possibilities four times and in four different ways, each one adding to the weight of the decision that lay before us each one of them, as it were, chasing us down, demanding that we choose one or the other because you can't not choose. By not choosing, you actually have chosen. Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount by demanding a response. And first he says there are two gates Two gates. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there's this wide gate with a wide path, and there's a narrow gate with a narrow path. There are no other gates. There's no other way to go. One goes this way, the other goes that way, and there is no other path. So let's take a look at them. The first, let's look at the wide gate with the wide path. Well, the good news is you don't have to squeeze through to get through this gate. You can bring all your baggage with you. You you don't have to drop anything. You can keep your sin. You can keep your pride. You can keep your self-love. You can keep your self-righteousness. You can keep your ideas of religion. You can keep your notion of truth. You can keep it all because the path is spacious. It's roomy. It's wide. I mean, there's a place for anyone to walk, whether you would say that you're religious or not, whether you say you believe in God or not. You want to be a moral person? Great. There's a place for you. You want to throw out any rules that might be placed upon you? Okay. There's space for you too. There are church lovers on this path. Church members on this path. Church haters on this path. Those who could care less about church on this path. And you know what? There are lots of people on it. Lots of people. They're all around you. You'll never be alone. And you know what they'll never do? They'll never contradict you. They'll affirm whatever it is that you want to do because... Even if they personally disagree, they'll never say anything about it because, hey, there's plenty of room here for all of us. It's a wide place. And then there's the narrow gate and the narrow path. It's nothing like the wide one. It's actually just the opposite. You actually have to drop everything to get through this gate. It's like one of those turnstiles that goes into the subway or into somewhere else. I'm glad that at Menards, there's next to the turnstile, the big wide gate. I always take the wide gate at Menards. (laughs) But here at this narrow gate that Jesus is talking about, you can't take anything with you. 
You have to let go of that sin that you've been clinging to, that you think is so part and parcel to who you are. You have to let go of the pride to get through. You have to drop your old idea of religion. You have to drop this kind of makeshift, imaginative, throw everything together idea of God. You have to leave that behind. It won't fit through the gate. You have to leave it all because you can't get through with it. And the fact is, once you get through the narrow gate, it's a narrow path. It's actually a hard path, is what Jesus says. There are restrictions all over the place. Nothing like the wide path. There's a thou shalt not on this side and a thou shalt not and a thou shalt on the other side. And these are the rail, the guide rails that are meant to keep you on the path. They're meant to help you to walk faithfully down this path. And it's close quarters because even though few find it, this place is narrow and you're squeezed together with a whole bunch of other people. But they're not just going to say, well, whatever you think. They're going to say, no, there's the railway on the right and there's the guideway on the left. They're going to say, stop looking at yourself. You're going to trip and fall. You need to look forward. You need to look to the one who made the path in the first place. You start wandering toward the edge, they'll call you back. They might even yank you back if you get too close. Because they care. It's a tight road. It's a hard road. It's a narrow road. Now listen, you know those, you know those man on the street interviews that you see on different TV shows? Some person's out there asking. If I went out there and I described the wide road and I described the narrow road, if I described the wide gate and the narrow gate and the wide path and the narrow path, which path do you think is going to sound best to the person on the street as it is now? Well, that wide path sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, that lets me do me, and you do you. That lets us all get along. I mean, that, that sounds easy. That sounds good. That sounds satisfying. You know what? It actually, it sounds freeing, doesn't it? It sounds freeing to have that much space, to have that much room. And the fact of the matter is, it's a path that many are on. And in a crowd of this size, my guess is some of you are on it. And going to church is just part of the path. It's just part of the path. But friends, Jesus actually won't settle for his name and his teaching to be among all the other things that you like to hear. Jesus doesn't want to be in a circle with Buddha and Muhammad and you and any other teacher you can get around you and you just sit around the campfire and each of them contributes a little thing and you're like, oh yeah, I'll take that from you and that from you and Jesus, that's a good point, I'll take that from you. Jesus won't have it, you see. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Jesus won't settle for being used for whatever benefit you think he might bring to the table. You either have him all or you don't have him at all. Enter by the narrow gate. Jesus is saying, stay off the wide path. Don't be deceived. A life that looks easier, a life that looks better, a life that seems that way 
It's not the right choice. It's not the best choice. What you have to do is stop looking at now and start looking at where the path goes. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads where? Destruction. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads where? Life. Because the narrow gate and the narrow way is the way of faith in Jesus Christ, the way made through his death and resurrection. You see, when Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, it's just another way of him saying, follow me. Because he is actually the gate. In John 10, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, enter by the narrow gate. You see, there are two gates. Which one will you take? Then Jesus says there are two teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Beware, be on the lookout, stay on guard, keep watch for those who would deceive us. You see, here's what the false prophet loves to sell. He loves to sell the benefits, or she loves to sell the benefits, either one. They love to sell the benefits of the wide path and warn you against the difficulties of the narrow path. Now, if you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, you ought to. All the, it's an allegory. All the names, you know, tell you something about the character you're about to meet here. So, Christian is told by evangelist that he needs to find the narrow gate so that he can have his heavy burden lifted and be on the way to the celestial city, heaven. Well, on the way, he runs into someone who basically tells him, ignore evangelist. He says, in the way you're going, you're likely to meet with wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death. Why should a man so carelessly cast himself away by listening to a stranger? Do you know what his name is? Mr. Worldly Wisdom. I mean, with a name like that, you'd think you could listen to him, right? But you can't. You see, false prophets don't show up and say, Hello, my name is Bob. I'm a false prophet. They don't do that at all. Or any other name. They've got names like Mr. Worldly Wisdom. They've got labels like teacher, therapist, philosopher, friend, even pastor. They'll say they have a better way for you. 
You're making it awfully difficult on yourself. All this talk of obedience, you just need to set that aside. I've got a better way, a gentler way, an easier way, a, a wider way. You'll love it. Because really, it's, it'll suit you better. But Jesus says, under that sheep-like exterior, they're vicious wolves who will devour your soul. You see, false prophets simply follow the pattern of their teacher, Satan himself. 2 Corinthians 11 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They seem to look good. They seem to have the credentials, but in the end, they'll steal and they'll kill and they'll destroy. But how do you know who's who? How do you know what's what? How do you know who's false? How do you know who's true? Well, Jesus says twice in verse 16 and in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. And he paints a picture with two different types of trees. One is a healthy tree. One is a diseased tree. And he says the diseased tree can't bear good fruit. The healthy tree can't bear bad fruit. You'll know them by their fruits. So what are these things? Well, when we think of fruit in the New Testament, the first thing that comes to mind is actually character, isn't it? Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Do, does this teacher exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Are they genuinely loving, not just toward those who love them, but toward enemies, toward strangers? Do they have Christ-like joy, joy in Christ and not in the passing circumstances of life? Uh, do they have peace? Do they exhibit patience? Are they kind? Are they good? Are they faithful? Are they gentle? Are they self-controlled? And when it comes to sin, do they laugh at their own sin or, or do they dismiss it out of hand while taking your sin so seriously? Or do they take their own sin seriously and walk in repentance? Another fruit you might look for is the teaching itself, yeah? Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart come our words, that our words are like the fruit of our hearts. Does, does the teaching actually conform to the Bible? Can you tell that that actually came from that text? Or do they have to do these incredible gymnastics to tell you something that's not actually in the Bible? Do they teach sound doctrine? Now, that requires you knowing it, don't, doesn't it? Do they say that your hope is in a little more self-effort? Or do they point your hope to Jesus Christ alone? Are they actually preaching the gospel or are they twisting it into something that is not the gospel at all? These are the kinds of things. The third piece of fruit you might consider is their audience. Who is it that listens to them? Who is it that follows them? Are they genuine Christians? Do they care about sound doctrine? Are they seeking to grow in holiness? Are they more focused on Jesus as a group or a cause? A political cause, a social cause, a moral cause, whatever the cause is. Has that taken the spotlight away from Jesus? Because it's not uncommon today to find a video on the internet where some man is walking around with a microphone in his hand and like it's a tent revival and he's pacing back and forth and he's actually saying nothing about the Bible and nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just ranting and raving and he's putting forward his cause. 
That's false teaching, brothers and sisters. These are the kinds of things that we need to look for. Because look where these false teachers go. Look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And friend, when that tree goes into the fire, if you've attached yourself to him, to her, if your life is the fruit of their tree, you will go with them. There are two teachers. The false prophets... And the Lord Jesus Christ and all who stay faithful to his words. Who will you listen to? There are two confessions. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast, demons, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, confessing Jesus as Lord is actually part of being a Christian, isn't it? Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here we have folks who have what looks like a right confession, don't they? Lord, Lord. I mean, that's true. That's orthodox. That's good. It's the thing we ought to call Jesus. Lord. And it seems that it's not just words. It seems that their life backs it up, don't it? Because they're not just slipping in and out of church. They're actually serving. They're doing all manner of things. They're teaching Sunday school. They're preaching at the mission. They're writing books. They're sharing Jesus. They're serving in big ways and important ways. And in fact, they're successful. It seems that everything they touch turns to gold. They seem to be able to do all these things and reach all these people and teach all these people and serve this community and be a big help in so many ways. I mean, this confession, Lord, Lord, seems like the real deal. But Jesus hears more than their confession. Just like he, see, he hears more than your confession. He sees more than their ministry. Just like he sees more than your ministry and my ministry. He hears their private thoughts. He sees their lives when no one's around. When the crowd's gone. When the spotlight's off. And it's just them. You see there in that quiet place when you're all alone and your head is on your pillow, there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. There alone you cannot hide behind your right theology. You cannot hide behind your love for teaching the Bible. You cannot hide behind your church service history. You cannot hide behind your ministry resume. You cannot hide behind your Christian family. There is nowhere to hide. You see, what you think of Jesus, Jesus' true place in your life becomes clear when the fog of the busyness of work and life and ministry evaporates. It's why some of us stay so very busy. 
from the moment that we get up to the moment that we go to bed because we can't stand for anything to be quiet. I just hate the quiet when it's just me and my thoughts. And some people who hate the quiet when it's just them and their thoughts is because their thoughts disturb them, is because their conscience is ripped apart by the fact that they know that what they say with their lips and what they do with the time of their lives is going to have no bearing when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in that moment, in that quiet moment, it's just you and him. And these folks have a good confession. They have a right confession. They have an orthodox confession. But that confession won't have the last word on the last day. Those words will fall to the ground. And the words that will ring for all eternity is whatever Jesus says of them on that day. Jesus has his own confession that he brings to the last day. Oh, you've confessed, Lord, Lord, your whole life? Well, Jesus has a confession. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. It seemed like they were doing all the right things, but everything was wrong. It seemed so good and yet was so evil in the end. Workers of lawlessness. Do you call Jesus Lord, Lord? You ought to. It's a good thing. It's the right thing to call him. But know this, not everyone who calls Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is Lord just a word or is it a way of life? Do you do what the Lord says? That's the question Jesus is getting at because there are two confessions. The false one that will lead to being cast out and the true one that leads to being welcomed in. What kind of confession are you making? And then there are two listeners. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Everything really comes to a head with this picture. I want you to think about the crowd that has been around Jesus to this point. He can talk about gates, that's fine. He can talk about teachers, That's fine. He can talk about confessions. Okay. There seems to be an easier way to just kind of put those at a distance in some way. But then Jesus, like any good preacher, says, everyone who hears these words of mine. This is not general. This is very pointed. It's as if he's saying, you've heard these words of mine. And you have, 
and you have, and you have, and you have. You've all heard them. Jesus locks eyes with these people, and as it were, he locks eyes with us even this morning, and he says, you've heard my words. You've heard words about being poor in spirit and being meek and being peacemakers and being salt and light and loving your enemies and living a holy life, not just one that looks holy, but one that is. You've heard my words about treasuring heaven over earth and money and God over money, about trusting God and not worrying. You've heard my words about making God's kingdom, my kingdom, your priority, about praying with genuine faith-filled persistence. You've heard all of that and more. And the question is, what kind of listener have you been? Because there are only two kinds. We'll call them prudence and folly. Prudence hears. He hears all the words that Jesus is saying, but he doesn't just take in the information, you see. Prudence just doesn't fill up his sermon notebook. Prudence isn't just intrigued by Jesus, astonished by his authority, his clarity, his power. No, he believes what Jesus is saying. Tears of godly sorrow roll down the cheeks of prudence. His whole view of life is turned upside down in these moments with Jesus. And now he is determined he will follow his teacher. He will take the narrow gate. He will follow this rabbi, this Jesus. He will follow his teaching. He will follow his way of life. He will follow wherever he goes. Prudence hears the words of Jesus and does them. So that the way that he works and the way that he prays and the way that he treats his wife and the way he looks at money and the way that he thinks of sin and his priorities, all of it changes because of Jesus. And standing next to Prudence in the crowd over there is his next door neighbor, Folly. And Folly hears all the same words. And Folly fills up his sermon notebook. And, and Folly is intrigued by Jesus. Folly is astonished at his authority and his power and his clarity. Folly finds himself agitated at Jesus' words along the way. And he keeps thinking, I, I don't live like that. I don't do that. I don't do that. And sorrow upon sorrow heaps heavier and heavier, but in response, he feels no need to change. He just wants some relief from the conviction. Could Jesus just wrap it up so that I can go home, so that I can get back to what I was doing. And even when Jesus begins to speak of the one who hears and doesn't obey, folly still doesn't get it. No, no, no need for change. That's, that's for someone else, someone that's far worse than me. After all, he thinks, I really feel like I've been moved by the sermon today. That's pretty good. Prudence and folly 
stand in the same crowd and hear the same words from the same Jesus. Both are moved, and yet they walk away differently. One obeying, one not. One believing, one not. One changed, one not. And in the days to come, the difference will be seen when storms roll into their life. Prudence, when the storm rolls in, when the rain falls and the floods come and the winds beat on him, he's going to feel the pain of that suffering. He is going to weep. He is going to ache. He is going to feel all of the weight of it. But his life won't fall apart. He's built his life on Jesus. He follows Jesus. He trusts Jesus. He obeys Jesus. Often in the middle of the storm, he finds himself singing, Trust and obey, for there's no other way. And then when the storm comes into Folly's life, He too will feel the suffering of it. He too will weep. He too will ache. He too will long. But the storm won't just beat the outside. It'll leak into his soul. It'll knock him down. It'll drown him in despair and depression and anxiety and hopelessness. He might even just start blaming God for the storm itself. And he'll fall apart. But the deal is, those are just preliminary storms, friends. The big storm is yet to come. The storm on the last day of God's judgment, of God's wrath. On that day, prudence will stand and folly will fall. And great and terrible and eternal will be the fall of folly. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that's it. That's where Jesus finishes. There's no easing of the burden There are no words to lighten the load. There's no pep talk. There's no cheer up. There's no, it's not as bad as it sounds. There's no, you can do it. Just this, there are two ways to live. The way of prudence and the way of folly. There is no third way. And friends, this morning, in this room, in these pews, in these chairs, you will find prudence and you will find folly. And the question that remains is which are you? Will you stand? Or will you fall? 
because there are only two ways to live. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you humbled and challenged by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will give us grace to truly see the answer to whether we are prudence or whether we are folly. That you would give us eyes to see whether we are on the path that leads to destruction or the path that leads to life. Whether we are listening only to teachers who pat us on the back and tell us what we want to hear and approve of all that we think and make it easy to live in disobedience to you, or whether we are listening to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His words, your word, that you would give us grace to know whether the confession we make every Sunday when we sing these songs and we teach classes, and we serve children, and we help one another, that whether these things are true or whether they are a smokescreen, a charade, an act, give us grace to hear these words of Jesus and do what he says, to follow him, to see him not only as teacher, but truly as Lord, to trust him and to follow him and to obey him. Oh God, should there be any folly among us today. Would you, by your grace, redeem them, forgive them, save them, and bring them to the narrow gate? We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our way, our truth, our life, our door, our teacher our Lord. Amen.